Father God, uh, thank you for uh, making yourself known through your word. Uh, We pray um, that you would soften our hearts, that our hearts would not be uh, footpaths or even rocky soil. We pray that you would uh, cultivate by your spirit um, hearts that are that are good soil, ready to receive your word and to flourish in it. We pray that uh, you would work in us uh, what you intend through your word today, powerfully, um, change us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, 
There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today. For you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. The second reading is from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. In each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. 
They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thanks, Tom. Uh, before uh, we get into it, how about I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, we can know you. We pray that as we approach reading your word this morning and thinking about worship, that uh, by your spirit you would be uh, convicting us of some of the things in our lives we might need to, to turn away from, Lord, as we seek and pursue relationship with you. We pray that you would grow us in our knowledge and understanding of who you are as our incredible God and what it looks like to live for you in worship on this earth. Amen. Uh, well, I want to start this morning by asking a question, and it's a, it's a pretty big question to be asking on a, on a Sunday morning. Uh, I'm going to ask it nevertheless. Um, so just, just kind of think, I want you to answer kind of on, on the spot, in, in your head, you don't have to say it out loud when I ask this question. Um, it's a big question. Um, what does your heart desire most? It's a big question for a Sunday morning, but that's the question we're asking. What does your heart desire the most? See, today we're thinking about uh, the things that our hearts yearn for. We're thinking about what drives us in our life and what we live for. See, we're thinking about worship. We're asking the question, what is worship? And what is good worship? What is bad worship? Now, I'm, uh, I'm conscious that worship is a very Christian word. Uh, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, well, I hope that we can really clear up what that word means today. And actually, for everyone here, I hope this is something that we can have uh, clarity on together. Because as we think about worship, we find out from God's word that worship is actually something that is all of life. I think one common understanding of worship can be that it's a feelings kind of motivated response to God. Now we come before God in worship when we're feeling emotional and want to respond to him in a certain way. That's, that's one understanding I think that we can have about what worship is. Um, the other understanding today, I think, really revolves around um, the amount of worth that we might place in something and that leading our response to that thing. So, for example, someone might place a lot of worth in their image, uh, so their response to that image is to spend more money on expensive clothing, on haircuts, on manicures, on, on pedicures. They worship image and it's seen in how they pursue looking good. Or even in the song uh, we sang before, Practice Being Godly, someone might uh, pursue seeking to be a great athlete. Uh, they, they spend all their time practicing a sport like basketball or, or tennis or footy, rugby. Uh, they're in the gym for hours every day. They worship sport and it's seen in how they pursue said sport. But I think when it comes to understanding truly what worship is, uh, that there's a lot more to it than, than just placing wor uh, worth in something and that affecting your response to said thing. 
I mean, after all, there's nothing wrong with being presentable, is there? Nothing wrong at all with that. There's, there's nothing wrong with enjoying sport and pursuing sport. But a biblical understanding of what worship is, it actually leads us to the conclusion that worship doesn't start with us and what we place worth in. Worship actually starts with God, starts with how he created us to be. See, we were created as worshippers, created to worship God alone. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I think it uh, can pop up on the screen behind me, um, it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. According to the Bible, true worship is the God-enabled response that leads all of someone to respond to him. It's the God-enabled response that leads all of someone to respond to him. We are are to live lives in response to God's mercy. And we're going to learn just why this all-consuming response of worship today is the only adequate response that we can have to God. Exodus uh, recounts for us the very opposite of what we've just read in Romans 12 verse 1, doesn't it? In uh, in Exodus 32, we're uh, confronted with the decision of the Israelites not to worship God, but to worship other things. And we're also confronted with the severe consequences that they face because of this. But before we move into Exodus 32, we first need to understand where things went so wrong for God's purposes of worship to, to turn around and, and flip and go all wrong. So if you have your Bibles handy, we're going to be flicking around a little bit. Um, go to, to Genesis. To the first three chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 3, it recounts the creation of the world, the creation of man and woman, and of course, we read of the tragedy of the fall. From these three chapters, see, we learn two things. First of all, we learn that worship was the natural response of mankind to God in the beginning. Worship was the natural response of mankind to God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 has this to say. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, 
you will certainly die. See, Adam and Eve were the uh, original worshippers. Their lives were given over to living in response to God, following Him, living under His authority in obedience to Him. They enjoyed the blessings of that that beautiful creation and God-given dominion over the world, living in relationship with their Creator. And God walked in this creation, we're told later on, chapter 3. He enjoyed it uh, along with mankind. And it's just this really beautiful picture that we see. And we see that this worship, it's, it's not something that God ever forced upon them. Instead, uh, he, he said to them, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It's not something forced upon them. They live in obedience to God's word, enjoying creation alongside the Creator. Worship in the beginning was the natural response of mankind to God. It was all-consuming. And yet we learn something else as well, and that's, that's the second thing to do with the tragedy of the fall. Secondly, when sin entered the world, the natural response of worship to God became an unnatural one. When sin entered the world, the natural response of worship to God became an unnatural one as the hearts of humanity turned away from God and sought after other things. See, there was a snake in the garden who appeared before Eve and uh, who twisted God's word and tempted her to take of the fruit and Adam also. Genesis 3 verse 6 When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the the consequences there, they're instant. They feel shame and they hide from God. Innocence is corrupted. Their hearts are turned from seeking God and living in obedience to him and his word to desiring him to desiring instead what they want, which was to ignore God and do something that had the consequences clearly outlined to them already. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. Yet they do so, and so the pattern of sin is set. And the penalty of sin was set. When sin entered the world, the natural response of worship to God became an unnatural one as their hearts turned away from him. Yet amidst the terrible reality of the fall, we see the mercy of God shine through spectacularly. See, God doesn't just destroy creation, uh, instead shows mercy, withholds his wrath and judgment. It tells us in chapter 3, verse 22, that uh, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat for, and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. See, God does not let Adam take of the tree of life and live forever. See, to do so would mean the penalty for what had been done would be forever over humanity's head, but God doesn't want that. Now, instead, as the narrative of the Bible unfolds, we see that God seeks restoration, God seeks forgiveness for the very ones who forsook his name and turned away from worshipping him 
to worship of the things he created. And as the narrative unfolds, we come to Genesis 12. Chapter 1, Genesis 12, has this to say as God uh, speaks to a man named Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then a few chapters later, God reiterates this promise. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. See, God has amazing plans for humanity, that through Abraham, all families of the earth would be blessed. That Abraham's descendants would multiply and spread and have land, have dominion over the land, would have an eternal covenant with God. You see the the direction this is going. You remember Eden, the dominion of the land that Adam and Eve enjoyed, uh, the command to multiply, to increase in number, the relationship with God that they enjoyed. This is what we see again beginning to happen. God is moving towards restoration. And it's from Abraham, this man to whom God promised these great things, that the Israelite nation that we read of in Exodus 32 arose. On your outlines, there should be a point up the top that says, uh, a rebellious people uh, rescued. The, uh, the story of Exodus is a pretty well-known one, isn't it? Uh, they've even made movies of it. The book of Exodus, it, uh, it recounts God's actions towards the Israelites who descended from Abraham uh, and who've been enslaved under the Egyptians. See, God calls upon an Israelite man called Moses to be his chosen advocate to lead these Israelites from out of slavery to the Egyptians and for a very specific purpose. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, that they may worship me. Now through mighty acts of power that leave the Israelites and the nations around them under no illusion as to who has rescued them, God brings the Israelites out from slavery to the Egyptians, that they may worship him as their God. And he makes promises to them. Exodus 19. Uh, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the Israelites, for their part, they confirm that they will do all that God has asked. And it's, it's a beautiful moment. God's people restored to himself, no longer enslaved under the Egyptians. They get to uh, enjoy God. Now, it's not the Garden of Eden, but it's a picture similar to it, isn't it? Relationship with God, commitment to obedience, to worship him with their all. 
The promises that God made to Abraham seem to be coming to pass. Things seem to be returning to the way it's meant to be. But then we come to the Israelites' actions in Exodus 32. And we see that this people who have been rescued from slavery to the Egyptians are still enslaved to something much, much worse. See, despite being rescued, the Israelites, they still cling to rebellion. In the way that the Israelites choose to uh, worship God, we see their rebellious heart. We see the same thing that Adam and Eve gave into is what the Israelites do, and the consequences of doing so is clear. God will not tolerate sin. So we come to Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron, who's meant to be a leader of the Israelites, he does what they ask him to do. Commanding them, verse 2, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings, bring them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Just like that, the Israelites have disobeyed God directly. They've done exactly what they said they would not do. They've done what Adam and Eve did in the garden. The pattern of sin remains, ignoring God. Rejecting him, disobeying him. In Exodus 20, God had told the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not uh, make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Did the Israelites have failed to follow God's commands at the very first opportunity they have? Moses isn't inside, so the Israelites panic. They think uh, the link to God has vanished. So instead of, of seeking continued trust and obedience in the God who has done so much for them already, they choose to turn away. And their actions reveal some things that it's really important for us to pause upon and, and to ponder, to think about together. See, the Israelites believe that by doing what they're doing, that they're still worshipping God. But what we see here is that they don't seek to worship God the way that he has told them to, the way he's shown them to. They try to decide how they're going to do that for themselves. And I know when I read... Uh, Exodus 32, um, kind of, I think it's, it's easy for us to sit back and just think, like, wow, how, how dumb are you? It seems so obvious that this is not the action that you should be taking. This is directly against what God has commanded. But keep in mind that the Israelites had come from 400 years of slavery to a nation with a culture that was very different to the one that God was calling them to have. See, God called for a culture of obedience and worship to the one God. But the culture they'd been rescued from, they bowed down to multiple gods. 
who bowed down to multiple images of gods. The images of these gods varied, but the image of a calf or a young bull was one of the images that the Egyptians had bowed down to, that the nations around them had bowed down to as well. And here in Exodus 32, we have the Israelites doing just that same thing. See, what we see happening here is that the background that they've come from has influenced how they follow God, when God has specifically called them away from living in this way. See, by the actions of the Israelites, we see that they're seeking to be just like the nations around them, not like the nation they're called to be. And if, as God promised Abraham, if all families on earth are to be blessed through Abraham and his descendants, um, how is this going to happen if the nations around them are impacting them and not the other way around? See, this is the heartbreaking reality of what we see happening to the Israelites in this chapter, is that they create an image to bow down to in worship that is not God. And Aaron, who was meant to be a leader among the Israelites, he himself proclaims, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And even, even Aaron, remember his excuse when Moses confronts him and asks him, what, what's going on? Aaron kind of says, you know this, this bunch, how evil they are, the stupid things they do. They came to me and they said, um, make, make us gods that, that will lead us. So I, just, I got all the gold, the gold and I threw it into the fire and this, this calf just appeared. I mean, I don't know how it happened. It's, it's like a parent getting home and walking into the lounge room and a child is drawn all over the walls and all over the furniture and they ask the child, what, what happened? And they open this, they say, just open this, this packet of, of crayons and it just happens. I don't know how. But Aaron has, has fashioned them, this, this calf himself, using human tools to have an image for them to bow down to. The Israelites are reverting to living just like the nations around them, living in disobedience to God and not seeking to worship him as he has called them to, but how they want to. Notice they still hold a festival to the Lord. They still uh, say that they're worshipping God, but they're just lumping him in with all the other gods that they believe to have existed then. And it's important for us to pause and to think about this Because for us today, we live in a society whose culture is constantly changing. In a society whose culture revolves around people's desires and wishes, not around the God of the universe. A culture that tells us you can worship whatever you want for however long you you want to worship it. And we we need to ask ourselves the question, how much does the culture around us impact the way that we live as a part of society? Because we're kidding ourselves if we look at our own lives today and don't think that we could be in danger of this happening to us as well. See, the Egyptians worshipped multiple gods while uh, while the Israelites were in Egypt. And our own culture bows down to and worships multiple gods as well. Though we we probably wouldn't call them gods, would we? But we'd call them money, relationships, sex, Uh, career, sports, image, material, possession, security, family. So many things that that jump out at us. So many things that are actually good things. These are good things. 
but they're good when they're enjoyed the way that God intended them to be enjoyed. And the problem with the Israelites wasn't that Moses had left them, it was that they wanted security. See, their hearts were not turned to worshipping God, but their own security. And so they tell Aaron to make them gods that would lead them. So I ask you uh, again the question I asked at the beginning, what does your heart yearn for? What does your heart desire? If it's not God, then what is it? Or maybe for you I ask that question and your mind jumps straight to God. Well, in that case, I want to ask you, what is in danger then of trying to take his place? Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you are exempt from this. Because again and again, we are shown in the Bible that no one gets this right. We need to think about this because what stands out to us as we read Exodus 32 is that God takes it seriously when we reject him. He takes it seriously when we turn to created things rather than the creator of all. He takes our sins seriously. We see this in chapter 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. And then verse 10, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Just like that, the Israelites have undone everything. Everything that God has done for them so that they could enjoy the privilege of being his people, they have undone. And the penalty of sin against God is severe. See, he will not tolerate the worship of anything else but him alone who is worthy to be worshipped. Sin is serious and God will judge it. He wants to destroy the Israelites. But remember those promises we, we heard at the start that God made to Abraham Moses remembers those promises, and God does too. Verse 11, Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented, did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. God shows his mercy here in Exodus, just like he does to Adam and Eve in Genesis at the beginning. He withholds his wrath and the destruction of sinful people. But Moses looks around at the mayhem of the camp around him, at people running wild. He looks around at the people who've turned away from God, and he sees that the guilty must pay for the consequences of their actions. And yet the mercy of God stands out. He does not destroy the Israelites. The full might of his wrath does not descend upon them. Though by the end of the chapter, verse 35, 
we see he does punish them for what they've done. He sends a plague upon them. And the question we're left with then at the end of verse 35 is, well, what now? What now? If we are created to worship God, and worship is, is all of life, but we constantly seek to worship what we shouldn't, what then? See, Moses recognises that something needs to happen to fix this. He recognises that a payment has to be made. Verses 25 to 29 show us this. I mean, look at what Moses commands of the Levite people. The people deserve destruction. A price needs to be paid. So Moses seeks atonement for what they've done that they may be set right with God again. And it's a massive price that's paid. 3,000 lives. And yet, still, this is not enough. This does not atone for what the people, the nation of Israel, has done because what they can do isn't enough. The trespass is too much. The verdict has already been passed in Genesis. The penalty is death. is separation from God, from his creation. And yet, as we're reminded again and again, God is merciful. The Israelites cannot clear their name they can't atone for what they've done. No one can. But what we see by the end of the book of Exodus and what the narrative of the rest of the Bible points us toward is an amazing reality. See, God remains faithful to his promises to his people of land, of a great multitude of people receiving his blessing under that eternal covenant. God makes a way for reconciliation, for forgiveness and restoration of true and proper worship. And not just for the Israelites, but for all who turn to him. A way that will mean that sin no longer separates from God because it's been dealt with, because atonement has been made. Now we couldn't do it, but God could. And God did, we find out, by sending his own perfect and guiltless son to pay that price. And in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 26, in verse 26, we see uh, Jesus saying this as he and his followers are partaking in a meal of remembrance of God bringing the Israelites out from slavery to the Egyptians. Verse 26 of Matthew 26 says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus paid the price that the Israelites couldn't pay, that we can't pay. It's by his death on the cross that the transgression is dealt with. See, Jesus' perfect sacrifice makes atonement. What we couldn't do, God could and has done. And so we come to thinking about what do, what's our response? How do, we, how do we live now in light of this? Well, at the beginning, I read out a couple of verses of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And just like we see God's mercy in Genesis where he withholds his wrath from Adam and Eve and his mercy shown to the Israelites, well, we have seen what God's mercy has led to. Salvation from sin. Life in Jesus through the payment he has made on our behalf. And here Paul says to us that in view of this, in view of God's mercy, we respond in worship. That it's not just uh, with, with a little bit of, of our lives and of ourselves, but it's all of us. All of life is worship. Now, it's easy to fall into that trap of worshipping God because uh, we think it's, it's going to earn us um, his gratitude or, or, or pay that, that kind of debt that we feel like we might owe to him. It's easy to think that we need to please God in order to make up for the times where we don't worship God but worship other things. But remember, here Paul points our attention in Romans to God's mercy before the act of worship. It's in response to who God is. It's not earning something from God. Because true worship is the God-enabled response that brings all of someone to respond to him. He saved us from the penalty of sin. He's shown his amazing love for us. And our response to him, to his grace, is one of worship of God and God alone. Not just uh, one day a week, not just two, but with every second of every day, trusting in what Jesus has done on our behalf. And as we saw in our second reading, well, we do this with our eyes fixed on that perfected new creation where sin no longer exists to turn us away from God because it's been dealt with, but where we will enjoy a perfect relationship with God and where the curse of sin will no longer exist to point us away from Him. We see that picture of the ultimate restoration of what was the Garden of Eden. Chapter 22, verse 1 to 5, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the city of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. See, we live now with our gaze fixed on this incredible reality. We live now seeking to worship God in every area of our lives because this is how we were created. And this is, this is no small task to think about. This is, this is all of life. This is a big thing. This is a big topic. But if you're hearing this uh, for the first time today, at the least, please pursue finding out more about this God who has given all for you. So he loves you and wants you to know him. He knows you inside out, warts and all. He doesn't offer scorn and disgust. He offers you love, forgiveness, 
and freedom. So turn to him. Now for all of us today, there's a question that we are left with to think through that we've been asking all along. What are the areas in your life where you are desiring something other than God? Another way of asking this is, what is your golden calf? And what can you do today to turn away from that to God? See, if worship is the God-enabled response that brings all of someone to respond to him, what steps can you make today to ensure you are responding to him that way now? as you have your gaze fixed on eternity. Because that is the beautiful picture that we have to look forward to. Eternity with our loving Lord and God who has done everything to make it possible for us to know Him and to be with Him. As a church, how will you support one another in doing so? Be open with one another. Admit the areas of your life where you need help and help one another. And remember, you can't do this in your own power. But seek to ask God for help to transform your life, that you become more and more like his son Jesus. I'm going to pray now as we finish up that he would help us to do this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing mercy, for the grace that you've shown us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross so that we might be forgiven. Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you as you teach us, as you show us through your son Jesus with all of our lives, not just parts of it, that we would seek constantly to pursue you and you alone. And that when we get this wrong, Lord, we would not wallow in the guilt of doing so, but we would come to you knowing that you offer forgiveness and life in your son freely. We thank you and praise you for this, our loving Lord God. Amen. Thanks so much, Jack, for uh, such a thorough and helpful um, exposition of that topic. Um, Friends, if if, uh, something's, uh, if that um, topic of worship um, today has brought something up for you, uh, please don't um, uh, just let it go. Forget about it. Go away. If if uh, you felt um, the Holy Spirit's conviction and you'd like to talk to someone, uh, please catch up with either Jack afterwards or or Duncan or one of the leadership team. It's uh,